Praise God. Well, let's eat. Let's, let's feast in his word. Amen. And let's grow. Praise the Lord. Vicki, good to see you all the way from, man, you're way out there, man. You're Arkansas, right? Or I'm sorry, where? Georgia. You don't want Arkansas. You want Georgia. I knew it was Georgia. Uh, but that's awesome that you're, you've come a long way. She came by foot. So give her a big hug afterwards. And No, you flew here, right? Yeah, so her arms are really tired. So still give her, give her a hug, you know? <laughs> Good to see you, sister. Uh, God is good. Amen. amen. I, this message is, and I've been praying about this. We had this uh, deal over in Tennessee all week and been gone and a little jet lagged when we got back. And uh, we're just wall to wall activity, busy for the most part. And uh, it was good seeing uh, people we hadn't seen in a while, and, but also ministering to a lot of people. A lot of, a lot of work, but it's so good to be back. And I've been meditating on the Lord and, and seeking Him. And and it was very interesting because Chad and I were having a discussion on God's name, one of his names, Yahweh, you know, how it's a special name that he reveals himself to his followers as Yahweh. And we talked about that a little bit. And that's in my heart and my mind all the time because I'm transfixed and I have been for many years on the Lord's Prayer, which we really call the, the Prayer of the Disciples because the Lord never actually prayed it. It's his prayer only in the sense that he gave it to them and it ultimately belongs to him, but he never prayed, forgive us our sins, amen? Because Jesus would never pray, forgive me my sins, right? But uh, I love that prayer, and I believe most people skip by the first part. Hallowed be thy name. And they don't even know what that means. To tell you right now, if you ask people that say the Lord's Prayer, even most Catholics, you know, uh, that, who say it maybe several times on the rosary, not nearly as many times they say the Hail Mary, though, by the way. There's a lot more Hail Marys, which you're not supposed to pray uh, to another person other than the God on the rosary than the, our Father. But you ask most people, what does it mean, hallowed be thy name? A lot of people just shrug their shoulders. But it means that, God, make yourself known. Make your name known. Show how holy you are. Hallowed means, refers to his holiness. Hallow your name throughout the heavens and the earth, because hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, amen? It's joined to the rest of the prayer, which is that his name is to be known throughout the cosmos, in heavens, and on the earth as it is in heavens already. And the time will come when the Antichrist's name will be exalted above every name for a while, on the earth. And he'll repudiate the name of Christ and kill people that, because of the name of Christ. And he will seek to be high and lifted up, which is a lie, short, short 42 months, then he's wiped out. And then in the millennial period, when Jesus returns and destroys the Antichrist, throws him in the lake of fire, where he, he burns forever, we read in Scripture that his name alone will be exalted in the earth. Amen? That's when that prayer is ultimately answered, when Christ returns. Amen? But that prayer is answered every day in a myriad of ways in our own lives and the lives of believers as God shows forth his name on the earth and people come to Christ. Amen? So it's interesting. It has a, 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 a now but not fully yet fulfillment in our own lives and in the earth as people come to Christ and put him first and he's exalted. But we wait for its ultimate fulfillment, amen, in the kingdom. But I wanted to talk to you about, and I, I mentioned going through the Lord's Prayer uh, slowly but not every week in a row. But a lot of the messages I give, you might even not even hear me reference the Lord's Prayer, but they'll be inspired by the Lord's Prayer and verses out of the Lord's Prayer. Because this is more about, you know, hallowing His name, but this is more about, do you know Yahweh? 
You have to know Yahweh. You have to know the one true God. In John 73, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And when he said Jesus Christ, he's not saying a first and last name. He's saying Jesus, right, from Yeshua, right? God saves is what that means. God's names have meanings, Yeshua. And Christ, from Christos in the Greek, from Messiah or Mashiach, uh, the Hebrew, means the anointed one. Then though especially chosen by God, his only son that he sent to us. This eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's not enough to know about him. Knowing about him will not save you. The Bible says that the demons believe and they tremble. They even tremble with the knowledge of God. And they fear him on some level. But he goes, Paul, James goes on to say in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Just like the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead. And just having a belief in your head will not save you. For even the demons tremble. They believe and tremble. You have to make sure you don't just know about him. You need to make sure you know him. Amen. You know who he is. And you not just know who he is, but you have a relationship with him. Amen. A personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are hundreds of millions of people all around the earth who know about him. They're in churches, many of them today. And it breaks my heart because they come to the churches and they hear about him. But they leave and they're none the wiser. They have more knowledge. But knowledge is different than wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. And they go about their lives knowing about him, even hearing about how to be saved, but they haven't come to repentant faith, a place where they've turned from their darkness and their rebellion against God and embraced him as their Lord and Savior and been actually born again, as Jesus said. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. We have to know him, amen? Do you know Yahweh? God doesn't have any grandchildren, as we like to say. He has children. But you can't get into the kingdom by holding the coattails of your parents' jacket or their clothes you have to make sure that you have a relationship with them well i went to church with my parents you know but did you turn to christ did you come to know him do you have a relationship with the lord do you pray do you talk to him have you dealt with your sins and said god have mercy on me forgive me i don't want to be lost forever in eternal darkness i want to be with you and and embrace jesus christ as your lord and savior this is all so important now it's interesting because we find a very interesting scripture in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, when God is dealing with Moses, he says, and it says in Exodus 6, 3, And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. But by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So it says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, those are the great patriarchs. Remember, God made the promise to Abraham. He took him out of the land of the Chaldeans and from his, his father's house, Tamar, the worshiper of, the worship of uh, many uh, false gods. He brought him to the, was bringing him to the promised land. He revealed himself to him as Al Shaddai. What a powerful name, Al Shaddai. What does that mean? God Almighty. It's one of my favorite names of God, as God Almighty. And he revealed himself to Isaac that way. He revealed himself to Jacob that way. And they needed that understanding of his claim of who he was because they were being taken out of a house of idolatry, that is Abraham. 
And God was giving these incredible promises that from Abraham and from his loins that he would have progeny, an inheritance where he'd have not just thousands or hundreds of thousands, but look at the sky. And if you can count the stars, look at the sands of the seashore. That's what your descendants are going to be like, Abraham. And then he says that every nation we bless through your seed. And then what happens is we find out that, uh, that, that the Jews are supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And Gentiles can become believers. Amen? And they become, according to Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, children of God through faith, children of Abraham through faith. Amen? So all those who trust in Jesus are children of Abraham. And, <laughs> I mean, you have almost 7 billion people on the planet. Almost half the planet claims to believe in Jesus some form of Jesus, some Jesus. Even Muslims believe in a Jesus, but it's not, he's not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the only begotten Son of God. But it's interesting, half the earth almost claims to know who Jesus is. We, may, we must make sure we have the right Jesus, amen? The Son of God. We must make sure we know the one true God, Yahweh. But he revealed himself as El Shaddai, yet in Exodus 6.3, he says, And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai in the Hebrew. God Almighty, that means. Uh, but by my name, Lord, and if you look at the text, it's all capitalized. L-O-R-D is all caps there. And when you see all caps, it's a tetragrammaton, which is uh, Y-H-W-H. And we translate that in English to Yahweh, typically. Some translate it into Jehovah. Uh, many translate Jehovah, many use Jehovah. I don't like to use, you know, there's nothing wrong with using Jehovah, but there's no J in Hebrew, you know, uh, so Yahweh, we don't know what the vowels are. That's the thing. The Jews took out the vowels, so we have the consonants, Y-H-W-H. Uh, that's interesting. It's actually pretty fascinating. Uh, you could say Jehovah. We say Jesus, amen? But Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. And we say Jesus, that has a J. So we don't say, oh, you, you don't use the name J. You got to say Yeshua. No, we don't even know. The name is who he is, what he represents, the meaning of the name, okay? And there's all kinds of different languages, some will say, you have to use, when you go to the New Testament, they'll say, there's what some Hebrew roots people, you'll come across them online, I run into them in the church sometimes visiting, they'll say, no, you have to use the name, you have to use the name in Hebrew, you know? And when you, and I say, really? You can't use the term God, you're saying. You can't use the name Lord. No, you have to use his names, his, you know? And I point out that when we have YHWH, we don't know exactly what the vowels were. We don't know how exactly to sound that out. Because the Jews, they felt the name of God was so holy, you don't want to pronounce it. So they took the vowels out of Y-H-W-H. There could have been a vowel before the Y sound, right? Could have been Yahweh, but it could, a, it could be a Yahweh. It could be a Yahweh A. I don't know. Or a Yahweh E. We don't know. I like Yahweh, by the way. This thing sounds great. That's just an English translation. Well, no, we got to make sure. We can't know exactly. You can know Yeshua pretty good. I use the name Yeshua a lot when I pray. But I have no problem saying Jesus, have no problem saying Yahweh, have no problem saying Jehovah. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Greek New Testament, when you see the word name God over and over and over and over and over and over again, you say theos. That's the Greek word for God. You see the word theon. That's the Greek word for God. You see the word kurios in the Greek. That's the Greek word for Lord. Amen? So when the Holy Spirit inspired the New Testament, it's important to know these things because people get all tripped up. They get like, oh no. And then they start telling you, now you got to keep the law. Now you got to keep all the feast days. You got to keep the Sabbath, you know? And some would even, you know, 
go all the way back to the church of Galatia, you got to be circumcised, you know? And all of a sudden you're on this works trip, and it's, it's pretty easy to figure out when God's calling himself Theos and Theon and using the other languages for his name, right? The importance is the meaning of those names, amen? Not that you necessarily get the pronunciation exactly perfect. But it's interesting, what is going on here in Exodus 6.3 where he says, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But he goes on to say, by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And this has tripped a lot of people up because guess what? In the book of Genesis, Yahweh is used prior to the statement here, just in Genesis alone, 160 times. He's even called Yahweh, even by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what's going on here? Is there a, a Bible discrepancy? No. A contradiction? No. Uh, not at all. Uh, because when you realize what God's name means, it has to do with his character, who he is, you know? I, you know, I have, my, my full name is Joseph Michael Schimmel, you know? And I might, my grandkids may have heard my middle name, but they may not have ever understood what my, they might even understand what my first name means, but they may not have understood uh, my middle name. And then uh, I could let them know what my middle name means. But God's doing more than that, you know? He's saying, You've, they've known me in the past as El Shaddai, but guess what? They haven't really known me as Yahweh in, in, in the context of what that really means in its full disclosure. But Moses, I'm going to show you how I'm not just Almighty God. And he had to reveal himself as El Shaddai to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Didn't have to. God didn't have to do anything. But he did for this reason. Because he was giving this, them this incredible promise that they'd have mass descendants all over the earth. Amen? That in the future, there would all, be all kinds of people who knew the name of Yahweh. Amen? And they would be his spiritual descendants, physical descendants, then spiritual descendants. And that's true right now. There's hundreds of millions of us. Amen? And it's fulfilled from Abraham. He's them though, I have all power. I'm going to pull this off. Right? Because all these idol gods that his Terah, his, not Tamar, Terah, his father worshipped, they were pagan gods and and they were limited to different, certain local areas and so forth. But he's going to reveal himself as the almighty God. And he does to Abraham. And I'm going to be able to pull this off. Because it's not just going to be a local thing with your local gods that your forefathers worshipped. And that are battles with the other gods of the other people, groups, and tribal gods. I'm the one true God. I'm the almighty God. But Moses, I'm going to take you a step further. And this is what we call in theology progressive revelation. That God reveals himself progressively. Like when you were a child, was your mom reading the encyclopedia your dad to you when you were a year old? Somebody might raise their hand because some parent might think, well, they'll seep in eventually, you know. But usually they just give you about as much as you can understand and then try to stretch you as you become two and three. Then you get a vocabulary. You start getting a vocabulary at you know, one or two. You start to talk a little bit more and more. And then they reveal more and more things to you. They don't tell you to memorize your social security number when you're two years old, you know. Does anybody have theirs memorized? Kind of, kind of, kind of have to these days, right? Uh, when it ends with 666, don't memorize it anymore. Don't even take it, you know. <laughs> but it's interesting with progressive revelation, God continued to reveal himself. And this is interesting. I love this translation of this verse, Deuteronomy 6.3 in the NIV, the New National Version. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But... By my name, the Lord, Yahweh, 
I did not make myself fully known to them. I love the NIV's translation there. It's a thought-by-thought translation on the, based on the rest of Scripture. So if you keep, go, keep that in mind, it's quite amazing. But let's look at when God speaks of how he's going to reveal the meaning of Yahweh in a special way to Moses. And this means a lot to us. Because you can't just know God as God Almighty and reject him as Yahweh. You have to know him personally. And go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now this is after Moses left Egypt, remember? He was in store to be you know, at the right hand of Pharaoh, or at least really close. Uh, he was a Jew, right? His mother floated him down the Nile, and he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh was, was you know, just, who is this young guy? Let him grow up there. And, but God reveals to him that he's a Hebrew, right? He's an Israelite. And as a Hebrew, as an Israelite, he belongs to the Jewish people. And he's not to follow the gods of Egypt. And there's a lot going on there, which we don't have time to get to, but he ends up fleeing Egypt, right? And he becomes a shepherd. Isn't that interesting? God made him a shepherd. And it was important because he was shepherding sheep because ultimately he's going to shepherd people under God's right hand. And God's, he's in the wilderness as a shepherd, but God's going to call him to set his people free who'd been slayed for about 400 years in Egypt. And God's going to fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham to bring them into the promised land. In verse 1, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was what? Burning with fire, and yet what? The bush what? The bush was not consumed. Interesting, huh? So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at him. The Lord, that's the Yahweh, said, I, am sure, uh, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. Verse 8, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Pezizite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? 
And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at the mountain, at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going uh, to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, he reveals himself as Yahweh, and the etymology is found in the term, I am who I am. And it's quite fascinating because he's revealing himself in a fuller way right here. Uh, he's revealing himself as more than uh, God Almighty. Is, and that's as powerful as it gets, right? God Almighty, right? But it doesn't say anything beyond the uncreated creator with all power, which is plenty, right? But it doesn't say much about his relationship to you. And Yahweh is what we call his covenant name. His covenant name, the, the name that is relational, whereby he made even a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he'll make a covenant with uh, Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's, Yahweh is his covenant name, his personal name. It's important to understand that because we must know God personally. And in verse 14 again, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And now most translations, and I checked several of them uh, today again, uh, have I am. Most of them have I am that I am. But people, you know, scholars admit this is a tricky, it could be I am and, you know, I am the one who is to be. It could be translated in different ways, but pretty much most, if not all scholars agree, he's speaking of his self-existence. The, the, the Hebrew terminology means that he exists. I'm the one that exists and that he's not dependent on anybody else to exist and that he is a self-existing one. Now for us as Christians, it's like, well, yeah, that's who God is. I mean, he exists and, you know, we, we teach, uh, you know, that he is self-existent. That's one of the attributes of God that we speak of often, right? But that's a big deal, you guys. That's a real big deal in the context in which God is revealing himself here. You know why? Because in the book of Genesis, in Exodus, in the Ain communities, Ain is A-N-E, the ancient Near Eastern communities, all around them, the gods of the, fa the false gods, the pagan gods of the nations back then, uh, all were not, they were not self-existent, you know? Uh, they were cyclical. They birthed each other, you know? Even the first in their pantheons often comes from a self-existing self matter, you know? He comes from, uh, you know, something else. And uh, he's birthed by something else, you know? So there's a cyclical thing going on where they don't really have an understanding of a God who is separate and distinct and self-existing apart from any other God who created all things. Are you with me? In fact, their gods, they try to understand in rudimentary ways. They, they make them in the images of their, their animals, whether it's a dog or a lion or a fish or what have you, amen? And when you go into the different pagan nations and you go to their temples, you would see these images of their gods everywhere, amen? And oftentimes they were demonic looking. Usually they were demonic looking. And they were war gods often. But when you went into the Jewish temple, which would be built after this, first the tabernacle, then the temple, God forbade them to have any image of himself, didn't he? 
Because he says, I fill the heavens and the earth. And he doesn't want anybody to worship a mere image of him. Because you cannot understand him simply by a mere image. And yet, uh, it's, so it's important to get this, to understand that there's heavy things going on here, okay, that I think will really bless you in your understanding of who God is as the self-existing one, as the I am that I am, okay? Uh, in the Greek, it's ego, ami, ho, on. Ego is a, like from, the, we get the word ego from ego, ego, ami, I am that I, I am, ho, on. Uh, and he is, that's the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Here is ego, ami, ho, on. And uh, he reveals himself as the I am throughout Scripture, the Yahweh. He says throughout Isaiah chapter 43 through Isaiah 49, over and over again, actually way back to Isaiah 41, I alone can tell you the end from the beginning. I prove to you that I am. Ego, ami. I am. Because I can tell the end from the beginning. And all the false gods, he says, cannot even deliver themselves from the flames. They can't deliver you from the flames. Isaiah 47, the end of the chapter there. That you, you know, you prophesy by the stars through astrology, but you, you know, go to your soothsayers. They can't even deliver themselves from the flames. God is the only God that can ultimately save. He says, I am the only Savior in Exodus. He's the one true God. He's the Almighty God, but he's also Yahweh, the God of covenant, as a relational God. But he's letting them know something very important. Why Yahweh right now? Why is he identifying himself as, yes, I'm the God Almighty. He's been revealing that since Genesis. He lets them know his name, Yahweh, 160 times in the book of Genesis. But why identifying himself and saying, you haven't fully known me and understood who I am as Yahweh now? Because they are in bondage in Egypt where they're worshiping all these gods who don't self-exist. All these pagan gods. And it's part of the culture they're growing up in. And the Jews would over and over again become allured and seduced by all these false gods. And the Bible says the gods, the nations are what? Demons. They're demonic entities using these gods. So now he wants to let them know that I am a self, the self-existing God. There's no one like me. Amen? Are you understanding what I'm saying so far? And we see that. He says that Throughout uh, the scripture, Deuteronomy 4.30 says this, Jehovah or Yahweh is, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath there is none else. Deuteronomy has to do with the Exodus. God's revealing himself. He's saying, I'm the God of heaven, I'm God of earth, and there's no one like me, there's none else. And that language is strong in Torah to distinguish himself as an existing one who alone is self-existent, separate from all these false gods, that they've been surrounded by for so long. Do you understand? He's fully revealing who he is in a deeper way, which is very, very important. Now, I think it's critical that we understand this. And even when you look at verse, for instance, verse 6, he also said, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Why does he freak out at that point? Because right there, he's revealing himself. I go way back. Before Abraham, I'm the one that called Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, I'm this God that's always been around. So, I mean, he was around all these Egyptian gods constantly, right? But now when God's in this burning bush, and he's the burning, but not burning the bush. He's the fire in the bush. And he reveals that aspect of his being. He's revealed, it's, at the, it's when he reveals how far he goes back, which is far beyond that. Because Abraham, keep in mind, Moses is going to write Genesis. 
The God who exists is a self-existent one, is the one who creates heaven and earth. Amen? The very first verse of the Bible. Now, it's interesting. When you look at all this, it's actually really, really mind-blowing because um, when we see him doing this and revealing himself in this way, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Because just the term, I am that I am, if, if he just said from a cloud, I am that I am, that would be powerful. But he's revealing more about his nature than just the words right there to Moses. And this really, really arrested my consciousness really recently. And, and it was deeper to me than it ever had been because I've contemplated that, and I'm sure a lot of you have, right? The burning bush and what's the significance that the bush is burning, but it's not itself being burned up, Right? You ever scratch your head? What's that mean, right? All of us have done that, maybe. Why is the bush not? Is it just to get Moses' attention? No, I think there's far more going on than that. Because God is using that picture to say something about his nature. Because he does that deliberately. He does that in the context of who he is. Because that fire in the bush is existing. And he says, I am that I am. You and I cannot say, if somebody says, hey, who are you? You know, none of us would say, well, I am that I am. Like we've just always existed, right? Because we have had a beginning, amen? We have come from parents, right? We don't self-exist. All of us have had a parent, right? All of us have a beginning. We all have a beginner. The ultimate beginner is God, amen? He's the one that created us. So we can't speak like that. So just the words I am that I am are, are powerful. But he does this in such a way to reveal something about who he is as Yahweh that we need to get our heads around. And it is this, that when I think of the bush and why it's not burning, I think of the fact that the scriptures say that God is a consuming fire, right? But the bush isn't being consumed. And it blows me away. He reveals himself that, that way in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, over and over again, God reveals himself as a consuming fire. You know how he usually reveals himself as a consuming fire? Pretty much every time you see the, that God's a consuming fire, it's in the context of judgment. Like when the sons of Korah, they rebelled against Moses and his leadership, and God opened up the earth and just sucked them up and <laughs> destroyed them with fire. He says, I'm, I'm a consuming fire. Wow. You see that more than once through the Old Testament. About five times, I think, in all. I have a whole chapter, which is kind of like a book on God being a consuming fire. And then uh, you find in the New Testament, in Hebrews, where it warns about turning away from Christ, falling away. And he says uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, that if we go on sitting willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, in the context there is rejecting Christ and trampling underfoot the blood of Christ, it says, insulting the Holy Spirit, and so forth. It says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So if we turn away from Christ, he says, we no longer have a sacrifice, because there's no other sacrifice other than Jesus, right? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So he says, for if you know, they were stoned to death under two or three witnesses under the law of Moses, that's just really bad and sad, right? He says, of how much worse punishment suppose, do, you, uh, do you suppose it will be for those who have what? Done all these things I mentioned. He says there'll be worse punishment. And he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 10, 26, 27, and so forth, that they will be consumed 
by raging fire. That's powerful, right? Then in verse 31, you know what he says? He says it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God and that God will judge his people. Then you go to chapter 12, you look at verse 29, and it says, let us serve him with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. That's pretty heavy, huh? So my point is, is that when God's referred to as a consuming fire, he's referred to as a God of judgment. Are you following me? That you don't trifle with him, you don't mess with him, you don't turn your back on him and commit a posse, rebel against him as though it's no big deal. He's a radical God. That's the God that's in the burning bush. Now think about this. This is where it gets heavy. The bush is not being burned. Now oftentimes when I think about that, and I think there's truth to what I'm going to say, but I think my thought hasn't been lofty enough on this. I think the bush... What comes to my mind, because we're the creatures, we identify with the bush, it's not being consumed, right? We're like, wow, that's gnarly, right? Because the scriptures tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that's where it says that no one has seen God and lived. It says God alone has immortality. Listen to this. God alone has immortality and possesses, he alone possesses immortality, it says, and dwells in unapproachable light. And no man has seen him or can see him and live. You can't, you know? So now God's not showing all of his, he's not in all of his glory before Moses because Moses would just be blinded, right? He'd just be disintegrated. But he shows some of his glory. Later on, Moses will say, let me see your glory. And it says God showed him his backside or his afterglow. And he puts him behind a rock. And he just shows him his afterglow. He doesn't show him all his glory. Moses would be toast, right? But he shows him his afterglow, I like that translation. And Moses, and he puts his hand over him. He puts him on a rock. He saves him from his afterglow. There will come a time, though, where we'll be able to see God in all his glory, and we'll be able to be with him forever and ever. For it says, the pure in heart shall see God, Jesus said, amen. And we resurrect him, we made like him. And Job said, Job wrote, you know, or stated, that I know one day I'll see him, amen, and I'll be in, he talked about his resurrection, and I'll be in the flesh, Right? And see him with my own eyes. He'll see the resurrected one. But that's because we'll be made like him. Right now we're nothing like him. Amen. As Christians we're becoming like him. But we're in this fallen, stinky, we're zombies right now. We're bodies that are dying. We're the real zombies. I always point that out. We make movies about zombies. Like, glad I'm not them. We are them. Okay, we're the zombies. Okay, the ones dying. We're the ones that stink and everything else. And, and we go to the grave, you know. But one day we're going to be resurrected. Amen. In imperishable, immortal bodies. Amen. We look forward to that. But at this time, Moses has seen a picture, a small part of God's glory. That's why I think from seeing that, he wanted to see more. Show me your glory, Lord. Okay, I'm going to show you my afterglow. Then he saw even more. And when it passed, he could describe it as goodness, you know, holiness, righteousness, all these wonderful things. Because somehow God was speaking to him through whatever essence he was allowing, part of his essence he was allowing him somehow to be physically represented. And Moses is talking about just, the, and also his judgment, that he's powerful. But right now, he's looking at this burning bush, and he's tripping out because Moses sat as a shepherd by many campfires, broke down many bushes, sometimes maybe even just lit a bush on fire. We don't have time to build a campfire. This bush has been dead. Well, who knows? But he's seen burning bushes before. This thing's not being consumed. My mind immediately goes to the idea that, praise God, that bush is not being consumed. That shows that God has the power to manifest some of his authority and his power 
and not consume the object. Aren't you glad Jesus could live in you without consuming you? Amen? And that's a beautiful thought. But there's something even heavier going on here that expresses I am who I am. I am, as some translate, that I am. I am the self-existing one. He's saying, I don't depend upon anything. And he gives him the picture in the burning bush. What does a fire depend upon to burn, guys? Fuel. What is a burning bush when it comes to a fire? Fuel, amen? And the fire to exist has to depend on something else, amen? Like the burning bush. But God is saying, now get it, guys. Don't let this go over your head. It's not that complex. I am that I am. And Holly, I know you just came out of the bathroom or something, so you don't want to miss this part. Okay, is uh, when he's saying, I am that I am, he is saying with the burning bush that guess what? I don't derive my power, my source of existence from anything. I just exist. Every fire that we have on earth it has a beginning and it has a source. If, that bur- if, if it's a regular fire that Moses is looking at, that, what, that, eventually that bush is going to do what? It's just be decomposed, totally consumed. And then what's going to happen to the fire? It's going to go out. God's saying, I I am that I am. I self-exist. And it's not just the words. Are you with me? It's the imagery we hear about in the Word of God, where God's saying, I don't depend on anything. You and I, we depend on God. Amen? We depend on the resources around us and so forth. And... Uh, so God is in a very, very powerful way. I think it's just too beautiful. And I was, my brain was just like freaking out. I'm like, wow, Lord, this is so amazing that you're showing Moses what it means. So we don't just have the etymology of the words. And certainly we can go back, and some scholars will say, well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew the name Yahweh, but they didn't understand its etymology. They didn't understand really what it's meaning. It's not like they're etymologists and so forth. So they didn't understand the fullness of it, what it meant. And they're right. But it's not because they just didn't understand maybe the etymology. They didn't get the picture that God was giving to Moses. Are you with me? When he said he's going to reveal to himself, to Moses, more about who he is. And Moses needed to understand that the God that he's going to serve, the God that he's going to champion and he's going to stand up for, and when he goes to Egypt, is not dependent on, you know, any, he's not even dependent on worship or anything. He's not dependent on fuel. He's not dependent on anything. He self-exists. He's God Almighty, but he's been in existence forever. He has no beginning and no end. And that's going to, are you with me now? That's going to, his confidence is just going to be fired up. So that's what's going on there. And I think that's powerful, uh, a powerful reality and that we need to uh, you know, continue to meditate upon as Christians and be thankful for. So what's interesting as well here is that the fire is pure. You know, It's not consumed with anything else. Any fuel or anything else, it exists in of itself. And this is a really cool quote. One of my favorite commentators ever. If you're looking for a commentator, commentary in the Bible, this is an old one in the 1800s uh, named Alexander McLaren. You know, when I was a young Christian, I bought Alexander. He's a, a Scottish, uh, uh, you know, he, I loved his illustrations because he's always using nature. You know, there was no TV around and no, no, nothing to really draw upon but besides nature and everyday life. And man, he made use of it in a, in a beautiful way. But Alexander McLaren, he's been called the Prince of Expositors in the past. And I love what he says about this. Listen to what Alexander McLaren says. When he's referring to God being I am that I am, he says, that is to say, the fire that burns and does not burn out, which has no tendency to destruction, 
in its very energy and is not consumed by its own activity is surely a symbol of the one being being, whose being derives its law and its source from himself, who, who who alone can say, I am that I am. The law of his nature, the foundation of his being, the, one, the only conditions of his existence being, as it were, enclosed within the limits of his own nature. You and I have to say, I am that which I have become, or I am that which I was born, or I am which I, circumstances have made me. He says, I am that I am. All other creatures are links. This is a staple from which they all hang. All other being is derived and therefore limited and changeful. This being is underived, absolute, self-dependent, uh, uh, and therefore unalterable forevermore. Because we live, we die. In living, the process is going on of which death is the end, but God lives forevermore, a flame that does not burn out. Therefore, he, therefore his resources are inexhaustible, his power unwearied. Uh, he needs no rest, no recuperation, or wasted energy. His gifts diminish not and store which uh, he has to bestow. He gives and he is none the poor. I like that. He gives, he's none the poor. He works and is never weary. He operates unspent. He loves and he loves forever. And through the ages, the fire burns on, unconsumed and undecayed. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. That's a great description of our God. And I love it because if we didn't have him in the burning bush, right, in that imagery that God used with Moses, we just said, I am that I am, we would be talking about it still wondering. But when you look at it, and a lot of people just talk about the etymology. You know, most scholars, most commentators, when they come to this verse, they don't mention the significance of the burning bush in regard to the title I am that I am and with the title of Yahweh in chapter 6, a few chapters later, where he says, I'm revealing myself in a deeper way that I ever have before to you. And this is really awesome because you and I as believers, we can understand that he's the one true uh, independent God of all beings, the creator and the source of all things, but that we can come to him. And it's not like he's going to be begrudging because he only has a little bit of something. He calls us to come to him. Jesus says, you fathers being evil to his own disciples know how to get good gifts to your children. They ask you for an egg or you know, a fish or a piece of bread. You don't turn around and give them a, a snake you know, or scorpion. And you being evil, do good things for your children. How much more does your Father in heaven want to bless you, Jesus says. Amen? He says, how much more will he give you the Holy Spirit? I'm conflating a couple different texts where Jesus taught the same thing together because they're so robust. I love the fact that God is, and he's going to be fully giving to Moses, right? He's going to set his people free. He's going to bring them into the promised land. But look at how he describes himself. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? And I love that's Yahweh, the creator there, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might or power. He increases their power. Though young people, he says, grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord, Yahweh, will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isn't that awesome? You get tired, you get fatigued. If you're young, that can happen. But if you wait on the Lord and you pray and seek Him, amen, He'll empower you, enable you with His grace to carry on, to overcome the trials that you face, amen? And that's the deal. Did Moses have a trial before him? 
Did he have loved ones, people he cared for, that he wanted to see saved? Did he, did he want them to be set free from Egypt? Did he realize, man, these are all these demon gods and they have power over my people? He wanted strength. He didn't have it. He said he could barely talk. He said, don't send me. I, can, I, I can't even talk. And the Lord God, Yahweh, who's the ultimate resource, right, says, I will be with your mouth. Okay, he's, got, he's full of power. And guess what? Now today we live in Egypt. The world is Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of the world. Pharaoh, the taskmaster, the one who enslaves in Egypt is a picture of Satan who enslaves the world with sin. Amen? And we're set, through, not, we're set free not through Moses. Amen? The law of Moses. We're set free through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And Moses said, a man would, God would raise a man like unto me. Amen? Him you shall listen to. And if you don't, you'll die. And Acts chapter 3 says Jesus is that man. He's fulfilled that passage. And he sets us free. Amen? And now we have to carry on. And we have people that we love that are still enslaved to Egypt. Amen? And God's given us power. And he lets us know that he has power and that we're supposed to have confidence as we go into the world and extricate people from the fires of Egypt. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse, the last three verses of Matthew, beginning in verse 18, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. Amen? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the age. Because he'll say to Moses, I'm going to be with you, which he is. Well, we have, a greater, we have great, something greater than Egypt that Moses faced. We have the entire world system, amen? But we still have the same great God, who in a local level, which was still big, Egypt was a huge empire, but it's a picture of the world system today. And we've been called to arms in Christ, spiritual arms, that is, to bring people out of darkness in, with the gospel peace to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because his I am that I am doesn't just reveal his power and his self-existence, but it also reveals that he is holy. Because you notice in chapter 3, verse 5, he tells Moses to take off your sandals off from your feet, for the place which you are standing is holy ground. Why was that ground holy? Because God was there. Amen? Amen. God's in our fellowship. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Amen? He's here. We should always come with a heart of fear of him and love for him, recognizing who he is. Because, I mean, remember, we're not going to read the text because it'll take too long. I'm going to get done on time uh, today. And, but it's interesting when you look at Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah sees the Lord in the temple, high and lifted up, amen? And he saw the seraphim worshiping God. What were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Thrice holy. Amen. And they had two wings. They flew with two wings. Amen. But they had two wings over their faces. Two wings over their feet. And I've told you before, it's so powerful. They're worshiping God. They're in his very presence. Well, what is God? He's a consuming what? Fire. Fire. Yet they're not consumed. Yet why do you think they have two wings over their faces? Because what do you think? You know what seraphim, I've told you this before. You know what seraphim means in Hebrew? Burning ones. They're just like lit up. Their wings are over their faces because they're in the presence of the Almighty God, who is the I am that I am. Amen. And they're created beings. They haven't fallen. They're not fallen angels. Amen. They could be in the very presence of God and not be consumed. When Jesus comes back, 
I mean, when Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he gave a picture of his second coming, right? What did he look like? It says he shined like lightning. And guess who else did, too? Moses and Elijah, who were hanging out with him for a little bit there. And the disciples were tripping out on that. Peter's like, let us build three tabernacles, you know, one for each of you. And God says from heaven, Peter, be quiet. <laughs> not, not exactly that. But he says, Peter, you know, this is my son. Listen to him, okay? He was actually very patient with Peter. So with, Jesus is God in the flesh. He was super, I, I thank God when I read those things, I go, thank you, God, because you've been patient with me a lot. Patient with all of us a lot, amen? Because we're dealing with the almighty God, Amen? And when you want to know what the Almighty God is, El Shaddai, if you want to know what Yahweh is, you look at Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. In fact, guess what? The angel of the Lord we just read is in the burning bush. Who do we see throughout the Old Testament is the angel of the Lord? Jesus. I just did a study on that a few months back. We looked at so many of the Jesus of the Lord. I didn't even have time to go through all the Jesus or the angel of the Lord texts in the Old Testament. It's Jesus. It's, it's God in the flesh. He's not an angel, meaning a created being. Angelos in the Greek, the term angel can be used of a created messenger being, but also it simply means messenger, right? Jesus is a messenger for the Father, but, but he isn't created. So angel doesn't have to mean creature, of course. Sometimes it, speaks of a, it just means messenger. It doesn't speak to the nature of the being. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now what's interesting about all of this is he was re revealing himself as holy, Take off your sandals. I'm holy. That's part of what it means for him to be I am that I am. He's holy in this sense, in the ontological sense. When we speak of holiness, we think of being separated from that which is evil, set apart for God. Amen? But when we think of holiness, you need to also make sure you understand when you're speaking of God's holiness, you're understanding that he is separate from his creation. Absolutely pure morally, absolutely holy in that way, but also holy and pure in the sense that he is holy, meaning self-existent, uncreated creator of all things. Are you with me? Amen. That he's holy in that way. And that's who Moses is encountering here. Take off your shoes. You're in a very special area, Moses. And he's going to make it, you know. And these, remember, Isaiah, when he sees him highly lifted up with a seraphim, he goes, you know, he literally says, woe is me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember that, that narrative. And the Lord forgives him. And I'm not going to go through the whole text there. But he realizes, man, a seraphim have their... You know, and they're, and, he's, and they're not consumed, but guess what? I'm going to be ruined. I'm going to be toast. And you know, it says in Isaiah, elsewhere, who can dwell with God? Who can dwell with the everlasting burnings? If you stopped right there, you would say no one. Because the scriptures say you can't even see him and live in all his glory. Yet Isaiah goes on to tell us that those who come to know God eventually will be able to dwell with him. But guess what? Because right now, he's, he dwells in unapproachable light. But in New Jerusalem, which is a cube shape, right? But massive. It's the same shape of the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go once a year. Nobody could go or they'd be toast. The priest was granted to go once a year. And there was just a measure of God's glory in there. But Holy of Holies in heaven, the heavenly kingdom that we'll all be part of, will just be, pfft. it says there will be no need of the sun, no need of the moon, because God himself will be the light. We'll be basking in his light. But it won't be like... I'm going to get burned up. It'll be like pure, beautiful love, you know? His light will be things we can't even really imagine here, just, just dwelling and being energized by light that comes from him. The sunlight, man, when you're cold and it's freezing, the sunlight breaks out behind, from behind a cloud. Isn't that beautiful? 
I mean, I just went through that recently because we got winter, and I'm like, oh, I just want to sit here and get some vitamin D. I was walking. I didn't have time to sit, but I'm like, oh, I got a little time to walk. It feels so good. Man, that's just a picture of being in God's presence. It's just a minute little picture. It's going to be so incredibly beautiful, so wonderful. So it's interesting when you think of all this and take it in. And it's also important to understand that God is revealing himself as the one who will make his name great, who will reveal his name to the Egyptians. A lot of times people take this narrative of the Jews and the Hebrews in Egypt, and they go, look, God's predetermined to save the Jews, but he doesn't want the Egyptians. He hates the Egyptians. But they miss a lot of the text where God, those are souls as well that God loves. Amen? God doesn't will that anyone would perish. Amen? He wills that all would be saved and come to repentance. So he wants them to know his name. And how did I start this message? Do you know who Yahweh is? Do you know Yahweh? I think the name of the message is something like that. Uh, you know, do you truly know Yahweh? And he wants them to know him because they can't be saved through these, following these false gods. Amen? That's idolatry. The Bible says all idolaters go to the lake of fire. So listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. Why does God bring his judgments? I don't have time to build the narrative on the narrative here, but each and every one of the judgments of the ten plagues are judgments against a different false god of Egypt. Whether it's the god of the Nile, whether it's Ra, the sun god, he's showing them that I'm powerful. These are, this is my creation and the gods who claim that they are these things or represent these things. No, these things belong to me and I'll show you these gods don't have the power over these things. I do. Listen to Exodus 12, 12. Against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. So his judgments would be carried out against the gods of Egypt to set his people free. And in Exodus chapter 7 we read this, that God says he'll bring the Israelites out of Egypt Number two, he'll bring forth great judgments. And number three, he says, I'll do this. Listen to this. So the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He wants them to know him. He wants them to be saved too. And you know when the Jews left Egypt? Do you know they didn't left alone? They left with plenty of Egyptians. It was called a mixed multitude. Many Egyptians says, okay, I'm following Yahweh now. You know? I'm turning to Yahweh. And by the way, you know in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 12, 9 through 14, that people from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue will be saved, amen, including the Egyptians. Do you know if you go to Egypt right now, you won't find a whole bunch of millions of people worshiping, uh, you know, the gods of Egypt? You'll find all kinds of people claiming to follow Yahweh, follow Yeshua, claiming to be Christians. Pretty amazing, huh? Now, what's amazing about this as well is God reveals himself as a shepherd, just like Moses was a shepherd, God's the ultimate shepherd, and as not just El Shaddai, but as Yahweh, he's a personal God who will lead them tenderly as a shepherd leads his sheep, leads his flock. Psalm 77, 19 says of the Exodus, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 78, verses 51 through 53, he says, you smote the firstborn in Egypt, and he also says in verse 52, but he led forth his own people like sheep and he guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Wow. Listen to Deuteronomy 2.7 of the same Exodus. For the Lord God has blessed you in, that, in, in, what you have, in, in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through his great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not what? Lacked a thing. You haven't lacked a thing. Exodus 15.13 you have guided them to a holy pasture. Most 
translates say land, uh, you know, dwelling. The Hebrew word is the same word used in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, where it's translated regarding the green pastures. Same word. And it's kind of interesting because they, he says, I'm leading you to these green pastures. You won't lack anything. I led you like sheep. What does that make you think of? It makes you think of Psalm 23. What do you think David was thinking of when he wrote Psalm 23? He was thinking of that imagery because it all sounds familiar. You have not lacked a thing in the Old Testament uh, or uh, earlier. You have guided them. The word guided, by the way, is the same word in Hebrew in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 23. Uh, to your holy pasture, which is ultimately the promised land for the Jews, right? But for David, it becomes really personal. And I want to make sure it's personal with you. Go to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23. This is beautiful. Psalm 23, verse 1. What's the first couple words? The Lord. The Lord. By the way, which, what, what's the word? Is it capitalized, all the letters, or not? It's all capitalized. So it's not Adonai. It's not El Shaddai. It's Yahweh. Personal. His personal name. The Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. And want means to be in need. Okay? It would probably be translated, I shall not lack. Okay? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Same Hebrew word of the Exodus. He leads me. Same word leads in the Old Testament of them leading them. Beside the quiet waters. Literally, if you have the ESV, you'll see in the note, waters of rest. When they came to... The promised land, they were, in the, they were next to the waters of rest. And they were sheep. And he, Yahweh is a shepherd. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. He gave him the law for his namesake. Remember, he would, the, even the Egyptians would know his name. Are you with me? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which is what they were doing, enemies on every side, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Remember, he was with them by a cloud by day, a, a pillar of light by night, fire. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies while they're in the promised land, the presence of their enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows, a land of milk and honey overflowing with it. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because it goes beyond earthly, the promised land, the earthly Jerusalem. There's new Jerusalem. We haven't yet have obtained our eternal rest. And Jesus is preparing a place for us. Amen. And it's so ha heavy because... The ultimate shepherd is God. And when God becomes flesh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, God becomes flesh, verse 12, verse 14. It dwell, verse 14 dwells with us, amen? That God who is a creator of all things, Jesus, God becomes flesh and reveals himself. And it's interesting because when you look at the Old Testament, I, God reveals himself to Abraham as the great I am that I am. Then he reveals himself as a shepherd. And Moses is like, wow. He's doing what I was doing with those sheep, but he's doing it with the people. But how does Jesus reveal himself, guys? How does God reveal himself? John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, what? I am. Then in John 10, 11, Well, by the way, when he says before Abraham was, I am. Then you get all these glorious I am statements throughout John. How are you, how are you as I am, our shepherd? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You, need, you lost? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one because of the Father, but through me. You need light. You're in darkness. I am the light of the world. He that follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You thirsty? Since Jimmy's taking a big guzzle of his coffee or water, whatever that is, 
You know, he's the water of life. You hungry? I am the bread of life. Amen? This is the I am. Before Abraham was, I am. You're going to die? Yeah, you need Jesus. I am the resurrection of life. He that believes me, though he, die, he dies, yet shall he live. You need guidance, like they did in the wilderness, because we're in the spiritual wilderness, having left Egypt, headed for our promised land in heaven. That's where you get from John 8, 58, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Then you get to John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. He that, what happens? I lay my life down for my sheep. Amen? Usually sheep die for their shepherds. You know that, right? This shepherd dies for his sheep. Amen? And he is the good shepherd. And all that is just so uh, beautiful as to who he is. And, and I'm going to read it. John 10, 10, 11. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, says Jesus. I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know the good shepherd? Do you know Yahweh? How do you come to know Yahweh? Through coming to know Yeshua, Jesus. Because Yeshua is Jesus. You could take those Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd. Five words in English, right? The first part of that verse. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The Lord, the term Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. Jesus says, I'm Yahweh. You know when Isaiah says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yahweh is God? In the New Testament, it says of Jesus, every knee will, will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh or Lord, Kurios. Jesus is God, amen? How wonderful is that? You know, I read about a little shepherd boy, and this shepherd boy was in tragic, dire straits. He was uneducated. He grew up in the highlands of Scotland, and his parents died, but his grandfather was a shepherd. He came from a shepherding family. He taught him as a young boy to be a shepherd, and he didn't know much, but he taught him the first words of when he was young, about five years old, of Psalm, 50, of Psalm chapter 23. And he told him to grab each finger. The Lord is my shepherd. And that's how he memorized it. He just, the Lord is my shepherd. We all have different ways to memorize. And he memorized that when he was young. The Lord is my shepherd. And then he said, the, what happened is, uh, an incredible blizzard engulfed the village and the mountains by the village. A blizzard came in, and the grandfather was horrified for his young grandson, not being very old still, went out there, and he was snow-blinded. He couldn't get anywhere, couldn't see anything. He found his way back to his cabin and got in an old wooden chair and stayed up all night, you know, worried, concerned. And then uh, he found him the next day, dead, stiff. He pulled him up mortified, but he saw that he was clutching his hand in a strange way, and he had this finger right here. The Lord is my, stuck on my shepherd. He's my shepherd. And that signified to his grandfather that I died in peace, because just like he cared for the sheep, he knew his father in heaven was his shepherd, and he cared for him. Amen? And that's good to know that you could die holding on not to a mere figure, but you can hold on to the shepherd for real through faith in Christ. Amen. But you don't want to leave here today not knowing the good shepherd. Amen. You know what I love about Psalm 23? And I've read different commentaries, books, different things on Psalm 23. And everybody seems to miss, not everybody, but too many people miss this. You know what comes right before Psalm 23? is the death of the good shepherd for our sins in Psalm 22 right before that. 
where Jesus is depicted prophetically nine years, 900 years before he came. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They cast lots to divide my garments. They pierced my hands and my feet, right? But I will live again, he talks about, in the assembly. And he'll be praised by the people. And then you get into him being the shepherd. He's the good shepherd in chapter 22. Chapter 22 goes with 23, guys. But guys, join together. Let no man set apart. Amen. Do you know the good shepherd? If you don't know him, you can know him now. Jesus revealed the Father to us. All you have to do is come to the Father through Jesus. But you have to recognize that you're a lost sheep, that you're really a goat. We're all separated from God, and we're all in sins. Amen? And that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. The things that you and I should pay for because of what we've done, God became a man, and the good shepherd took the punishment that we deserve. Amen? Not just dying for us, but dying by paying for our sins. And he was buried, he rose again, and conquered the grave. Amen? So we could have eternal life. Amen? Is that good news? That's great news. But you must embrace him now. You must be able to leave here and say, yes, I know the shepherd. You must be able to grab that finger. Not that you have to do that literally, right? But he's my shepherd, amen? Because God doesn't have grandchildren, amen? He just has children. Make sure you're a child of God. And Jesus, the scriptures say in John 1, 12, as many as received him, he gave the right to have eternal life, amen? Let's pass out the cup and the bread. Can we all please stand? So the scriptures tell us that Jesus not only died for you, you're a good shepherd, not only laid his body down on the cross for you. But he rose again on what day? The third day, amen? And he's coming back again. He's called the chief, chief shepherd of our souls in the New Testament. And he wants you to have eternal life. 